1: Welcome to Naked Astronomy, a space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. This season we're tackling the big questions from our very big universe. My name is Ben McAllister, I'm a physicist, and each month I'll be sitting down with expert guests to take a look at the biggest cosmic questions in the world of space science and astronomy today. We've taken a little break in the last few months, so as we relaunch it seems fitting to zoom out a little bit and recall what exactly the outstanding questions are. This month, we'll be talking to a special guest about exactly that.
0: My career has spanned what I call the golden age of cosmology, which really began in earnest with uh, the first satellite observations of the cosmic microwave background. That's the afterglow of the Big Bang, the heat that bathes the whole universe. And by uh, data mining that heat map of the sky... Uh, we can tell an awful lot about how the universe began and what it's made of and how it's going
1: to end. The voice you just heard was Professor Paul Davies, a physicist and author of the book What's Eating the Universe and Other Cosmic Questions, which we spoke about recently. If you find yourself in a bookshop browsing through Professor Davies' published titles, you might pick up The Eerie Silence, Searching for Ourselves in the Universe, or thumb through a few pages of God and the New Physics. It'd be pretty easy to notice a trend... There's definitely a philosophical viewpoint to this cosmologist's line of thinking, and that's exactly the direction our conversation went in. I started out by asking what exactly are the remaining big questions, the cosmic conundrums that Professor Davies still pondered?
0: Uh, The biggest of those big questions is what happened before the Big Bang. Mm. Because I think everybody knows that the standard picture of the university began with a bang about 13.8 billion years ago, uh, and the question is, uh, what caused that bang and what happened before it? And during my career, uh, the pendulum sort of swung back and forth. So when I was a student, and that was a long time ago, uh, the feeling was, well, uh, the Big Bang was beyond the scope of science. In a simple picture, it was regarded as a singularity. What's that? A, a region or a place of infinite density where space-time becomes infinitely infinitely curved And therefore, there's a sort of boundary or edge of space-time. And it was simply impossible to talk about what came before the Big Bang. Stephen Hawking once remarked that it was like uh, asking what lies north of the North Pole. Now, the answer is nothing, not because there's some mysterious land of nothing there, but because uh, there ain't no such place. And and that's the way it stood for quite some time, that the universe just sort of simply appeared and space and time appeared along with matter and, and energy. Uh, But uh, although uh, that uh, sidestepped the problem of what happened before the Big Bang or what caused the Big Bang, somehow it wasn't very satisfactory. It wasn't really an explanation. And uh, then uh, Stephen Hawking and uh, James Hartle uh, tried to come up with an explanation of the Big Bang in terms of a quantum event, that it was uh, some sort of quantum magic which made the universe burst into existence from nothing uh, and that uh, was fine as far as it went uh, but uh, around about the time that they completed that work uh, the pendulum began to swing to uh, the point of view that maybe the big bang wasn't the ultimate origin of all physical things after all uh, and when you think about it if the big bang was a natural event well then surely will have happened many times with bangs going off uh, forever and ever, scattered throughout uh, space and time, so that any individual uh, Big Bang, any universe like ours that results from it might have a beginning, a middle, and maybe an end, uh, but the assemblage of all these Bangs would uh, be eternal. And so that's the favoured view among the sort of people I talk to over coffee, anyway, uh, which is uh, that the, it's often called the multiverse which is yeah. that uh, when you say what happened before the Big Bang, well, you know, there were other bangs and uh, and that there was no ultimate origin to the assemblage. Of course, this may change again in the future. It may be that... Uh, the fashion will swing the other way.
2: Yeah, I mean, it sort of is, right? I want to just dig in on a couple of things that you mentioned there. So this this quantum uh, creation of the universe idea is one that does get thrown around a bit. The idea that, well, we know that we can have sort of uh, spontaneous production of particles and antiparticles in, in our universe, That's an an allowed process if the conditions are right. So why not spontaneous creation of a universe and an anti-universe or something like that, right? This idea that there's a quantum event or that there's many, many spontaneous productions of universes going on within some larger structure. To me, it doesn't really answer the question, right? It just sort of kicks the can down the road a little bit because there needs to be a a place or a, a, a universe, if you like, where those bangs are happening, where that spontaneous production is occurring And in order for those things to occur, that thing, that universe, that multiverse, whatever, needs its own laws of physics that allow for the production of universes or universe-anti-universe pairs or whatever mechanism you particularly choose, right?
0: You're absolutely right. And uh, you asked me at the outset, what are, are the most profound unanswered questions? And I said, well, one of them is what happened before the Big Bang. But it's absolutely tied up with the one you've just identified which is the origin of the laws of physics. So, you know, Where do they come from? And uh, you see, if you, uh, as Hartland Hawking did, if you want to say, well, the laws of physics explain how a universe can pop into being from nothing because it's quantum magic and quantum theory incorporates that possibility, well, then you have to assume that the laws of quantum mechanics somehow already exist. They transcend mm. the universe uh, and they're out there, in some sense, uh, immutable Uh, mathematical laws, Uh, you can't say, well, the laws came into existence along with the universe, because then they don't explain the origin of the universe. And the same thing when we now go to a multiverse. Okay, so maybe our universe is just one bubble among an infinite number that uh, popped into existence about 14 billion years ago. But what was the mechanism that brought it into existence? Well, uh, if you go and talk to the people who model these things, uh, they're, they're deploying a whole range of mathematical relationships that represent laws that would exist in this bigger system, in this multiverse system. And you can certainly ask the question, well, why, why those laws? Where, where do they come from? Uh, are they literally immutable? Uh, are these laws eternal? And why those laws rather than some others? Uh, we could easily imagine a multiverse that had a different set of laws that either wouldn't produce bubble universes or would produce very different types of structures. Uh, really, it's it's endless. Uh, there's uh, as many different types of multiverse uh, and universes within them as there are limits to our imagination. Uh, so there's a lot that is not explained, and it may well be that we have to accept that science cannot provide us the ultimate answers to the question of existence. It may be that all we can do is uh, describe what we see to better and better accuracy, but we may never know why that rather than something else. Uh, it, it, sometimes people think that this very speculative science uh, is no better than science fiction or uh, mi- ancient mythology or something. I think it is. I think uh, that the, what we're doing in taking the very best that we understand about the laws of physics and pushing them as far as we feel we can to get some sort of insight into these very, very deep and difficult questions. Uh, that uh, because science is a reliable path to knowledge, uh, that, that's been our experience so far, uh, that it's the best account that we can give. Uh, and And so I've always been a, a supporter of seeing just how far we can push this. So I don't think we've got all the answers. I don't think we've written down the final theory that explains everything. And if so, uh, the theories we've got that we know and love, like the general theory of relativity, have to break down somewhere. And by pushing it to its conclusion, its logical conclusion, we may get clues as to what might replace it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. We need to just follow the road, and that's the only way we get. We may never get there, but it's certainly the only way we will if we are going to get there. Okay, so we have spoken about, you know, a simple, small thing, like why is there a universe at all and where do the laws of physics come from? Another question that is similar in magnitude, I suppose, is, all right, let's say we, we have a universe, it's full of particles, they're whizzing around, and some number of billions of years later, those particles create something really abstract called a conscious thought uh, that we don't yet understand. How, how do you feel about that? Any any thoughts on that one?
0: I think the emergence of life, and by extension, mind, uh, in the universe is one of the most profound but also baffling aspects of existence. Uh, We've we've got really three origin problems, origin of the universe, we've been talking about that, origin of life, and origin of consciousness. I've been working on the origin of life at Arizona State University for about uh, 15 years. And I always tell people, well, we don't know how non-life turned into life. It's still a deep mystery. We can't even give the betting odds as to how likely it is to happen. So we can't say whether the universe is teeming with life or that it requires a dream run of very particular chemical reactions and that we're the only sample of it. We don't know the answer to that. But I do say that we're hot on the trail. Uh, it's one of these things that I feel in another 50 years, we might very well either be able to make life in the lab or we've been discovered, discovered it elsewhere. Or we've sort of figured out what went on. When it comes to the origin of consciousness, it's very difficult to know how even to frame the question what is consciousness? Uh, I think we we recognize that it is a really important phenomenon and any complete theory of the universe has to have a theory of consciousness as part of it, uh, but we don't really know where to begin. So uh, what I like to do is to say uh, that uh, human beings are more than just conscious of the world about them. Uh, they are able to Uh, understand it at least in part through science and mathematics so the universe is not only uh, through these sort of blundering mindless atoms engineered living organisms and engineered its own uh, observers the universe has figured out how to observe itself Um, it's also brought into being comprehenders we uh, we can understand the universe we can comprehend it it makes sense to us and that for me, has always been a, a really uh, r- remarkable and important fact uh, that a lot of scientists overlook. They say, well, of course we understand the universe. We're paid to do it. That's our job. <laughs> you know, of course, scientists science go to work.
2: And as we all know, that's the main reason scientists go to work, is for the sweet cash. <laughs> <laughs> that's
0: right. And so you have to think, well, you know, why is it we're actually able to do this? And I still find this uh, profoundly mysterious Uh, but profoundly significant, because it suggests that that the emergence of life and mind and comprehension are all part of, you know, the great cosmic scheme, which began with the Big Bang, which was sort of bland and featureless, and then over billions of years the universe has become more and more complex, more and more interesting, a rich variety of phenomena. But the outworking of these laws and this complexification I think leads inevitably to life, mind, and comprehension. So it's all part of the sort of unfolding glory of the cosmos. Uh, and I see us as playing a very modest role in that. Of course, it's, uh, we're not central to this, um, but as representing uh, part of that outworking of those laws. The comprehension for me is really the key.
2: Yeah. What's interesting to me is we don't understand this, right? But what we do understand about Consciousness is that thoughts, feelings, emotions, ideas are in some way associated with the movement of chemicals and electrical impulses around our brains. And these are physical objects, they're interactions of particles, which we can sort of understand through our understanding of physics. We can sort of understand electrons scattering off other electrons, etc., and so forth. But at some point, all of that coalesces into a way to create something abstract this idea of conscious thought which yes i mean as you mentioned we we don't even really know how to well define and it, it starts to beg the question okay well is the are the electrons causing the thoughts or are the thoughts causing the electrons or are they both doing that to each other at the same time and what, what begins the process, which one comes first, and, and what are the implications of that for things like the idea of free will?
0: Uh, well, well, you've uh, gone through exactly the thought processes that possessed me at the age of 16 uh, when I uh, w- was reading Fred Hoyle on uh, cosmology and reading about uh, atoms, and I sort of figured, well, uh, my brain's made of atoms and atoms are going to do what atoms have got to do. And so you know, whence comes free will, whence comes consciousness, and it, uh, and of course, all of these things occurred to me. And I have to say that I don't think I'm any closer to coming up with the answers than I was at the age of 16. I think uh, to a physicist, they're really two, very uh, very basic ways of expressing this and philosophers like to obfuscate uh, the problems of consciousness in all sorts of infuriating ways but i think what it really boils down to is this that uh, somehow this electrochemical activity in my head is generating thoughts feelings sensations maybe the illusion of free will but illusions if you like so it's it's all uh, somehow a product of this uh, activity in my head Um, but i i know i'm not the only a conscious entity, and you have to wonder just what is it uh, that, that takes what type of physical processes have conscious states at, attached to them? Presumably the electrical activity around my house does not, although we can't be sure of that. Um, in other words, there is some something about particular electrical patterns, uh, but what is that? Is it the complexity of it, or is it the specific nature of the patterns, or is there something else? going on, we actually don't know. We don't know what does it take in terms of electro, uh, electrical or electrochemical activity to generate consciousness. That's problem number one. We'd like to know that. Problem number two is uh, if I, it's very simple to demonstrate in a lecture, If I want to move my arm. I think I'd like to raise my arm and, you know, up it goes. You can imagine me doing it. And so how is it that uh, my mental State, I would like to raise my arm, translates into the physical movement of the arm. Uh, is that mind ever matter somehow? Well, of course, you'll be jumped on if you say things like that because you'll be told, uh, no, there's a, a chain of electrical impulses that originates in the brain, blah, 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 blah. But at the end of the day, something has to uh, trigger uh, that causal chain. Uh, and it can be greatly amplified, of course, maybe something right down at the quantum level. We really don't know we don't know what does it so the twin mysteries are what types of systems uh, can support or generate thoughts and feelings and sensations and how is it that these this abstract level of thoughts feelings and sensations can be translated into physical forces that make a difference in the world we don't know the answers to to either of those
2: And it's a two-way street, right? So you think, I'm going to raise my arm, you raise your arm, and then that arm might touch something, or maybe your arm just gets tired, and then that creates new thoughts that create new actions. So it does become this, which came first, the first stimulus that created the thought, or the first thought that created the first action that created the first stimulus that was responded to. And then I think either way, sort of unless you unless you need unless you can come up with some kind of extra physical thing that sits on top of the physics and maybe it's the physics we understand and maybe it's some new physics but physics nonetheless without like the input of some extra physical thing that has profound implications for our ability to really make truly free will decisions right i mean if you've got a brain that at some point becomes conscious and the first thought it has is a result of some electrochemical activity that was going on the instant before it became conscious and that creates a thought which creates an action and then it responds to some stimulus none of the stuff that comes after that is is uh, truly free will. I suppose this is more of a philosophical discussion, but it's it's definitely uh, it's, it's adjacent.
0: But I think it, well, you know what you're you're saying, of course, is uh, is correct. Uh, that that if we're attributing our, our free action to our mental state that leads up to it, well, unless we can choose that mental state, uh, then it doesn't really amount to free will and if that mental state was uh, itself created by earlier mental states or physical or sense data or something again we have no control over it and so uh, this thing that we're so fond of called free will begins to look like a pretty elusive concept what is it and so what i normally say is uh, we shouldn't talk about do we possess free will we should say um we feel free and uh, Then people say, well, are we free? I don't even know what uh, genuinely being free means. Does it mean that if you could rerun the universe again, you'd do something different? Uh, Well, we can't do that. Uh, So free will is a feeling that we have. And you might say, well, that diminishes it. I don't think so. Uh, I think um, we couldn't live our lives without that sense that we have a freedom of choice. And uh, even if it's illusory, and I uh, often point to another illusion, and I believe it is an illusion, the flow of time. Uh, I don't think time flows. I don't think it moves at all. I don't think you make any sense of flowing time. You could just ask, how fast does it flow? Well, one second per second. tells you nothing. Um, uh, time has an arrow. It's, uh, there's a directionality to physical processes uh, around us in time, but time itself doesn't. Doesn't flow or move. Time is just there, uh, and yet we have this overwhelming impression that time is passing, uh, flowing, moving. There's a river of time, and the truth is we can't really live our lives without this belief that there is uh, some sort of flow of time, and, and, a, and a belief as well that we have some sort of freedom. And I think they're they're connected together. I think uh, at the end of the day, uh, what is changing. It's not time is changing from moment to moment. That's a meaningless statement. Uh, Our selves are changing from moment to moment. We have this notion that uh, the self is something which is conserved throughout uh, our lives so that the five-year-old Paul Davies is the same as the 75-year-old Paul Davies. Um, It's not true. I'm a different person every day. Now, of course, there's a, a lot of what Scientists would call mutual information between today's Paul Davis and yesterday's Paul Davis, uh, uh, very, very similar. But it's not identical. Uh, And so what's moving or changing or passing is the self.
2: Where do you think that we are in terms of uh, getting to answers to some of these questions? How far away do you think we are? And what do you think are the most promising tools or experiments or directions we're heading in to get to the answers?
0: I've always felt that dark matter is something we ought to be able to pin down.
2: A subject very close to my heart.
0: Right. Well, we know that most of the matter in the the universe is in some sort of uh, invisible, weakly interacting form. Uh, there's no list of candidates for what it might be. Uh, and I see no fundamental reason why we couldn't actually uh, detect dark matter in uh, in the pretty near future. Uh, the other thing uh, which, of course, uh, is, is always uh, at the top of everybody's agenda as far as what we might hope is the discovery of life beyond Earth. Uh, a microbe on Mars, for example, if we could be sure it was different from life on earth if it was an independent origin that is if it had risen from scratch independently of life on earth and just didn't splash there in a meteorite or something uh, then that would be tremendous and of course that could happen at any time uh, um, so uh, those are two of the things uh, then there, there is this sort of curious state in particle physics so particle physics goes together with astronomy and cosmology in a very obvious way, that the Big Bang was the biggest particle physics experiment in history. And uh, we can understand, uh, most of our understanding of the early stages of the Big Bang uh, are based upon what we know in particle physics, both from theory and from gigantic uh, accelerator experiments like uh, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN. And one of the curious things about that particular accelerator and those experiments Uh, is that the the particle called the the Higgs boson, which was predicted back in the 1960s, and forms an indispensable part of the standard model of particle physics. Uh, Our best understanding of subatomic matter uh, depends on this Higgs boson. That was duly found. It cost €8 billion, uh, but there it was. Uh, These are expensive particles to make, uh, but it's great to know that they're there. Um, But nothing much else has been discovered. And I think uh, we all hoped and expected that there would be many new and perhaps surprising particles that would help us go beyond the standard model, uh, because we know there's physics beyond the standard model. We know, for example, neutrinos have mass. Well, that's not part of the standard model. Uh, there's all this dark matter, uh, which uh, is not part of the standard model. So we know there's got to be physics beyond the standard model. Um, But this wretched machine uh, has not yet really given us much of a clue. Uh, But it's being upgraded, and I could hope that within the next five years or so, they're going to find a new particle. It's possible that cosmic ray experiments may uncover a new particle, but we need something. We need a pointer to this physics beyond the standard model. I think we're on the threshold of obtaining it, Uh, so I'd be confident that In another 10 years, we should know a great deal more about how the universe is put together.
1: That was Professor Paul Davies, author and cosmologist, and you can pick up his newest book, What's Eating the Universe and Other Cosmic Questions, wherever you find good books. And that's it for this month's episode of Naked Astronomy. We hope you enjoyed it and maybe learned something. It's always amazing to be reminded just how much there still is for us to discover about the universe. If you enjoyed yourself, please get in touch with us on social media at Naked Astronomy or at The Naked Scientists or me specifically at Dr. BT McAllister on Twitter. Throw us a subscribe or leave us a rating, review, comment or like wherever you're listening. And if you think you've got a big cosmic question you'd like to see us cover, send it our way. You can get me at benm at nakedscientists.com. You can also get in touch with us by encoding a message in the cosmic microwave background. Special thanks to Gianni DiGiovanni for editing this month's episode. Thanks again to you for listening. I'm Ben McAllister and keep watching the skies.